Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Busy show ahead of us tonight. On the panel, Dr. Richard Collins from his home in Malahide in studio, Niall Hatch and Anne Ilana. Later, we'll be hearing from Terry Flanagan, who's out and about looking at Barnow boxes. But let's get on with it, as you know. In conjunction with Nationwide, Mooney Goes Wild launched RTE Eye on Nature a couple of weeks ago. Lots of photographs coming in already, but we want more. Here are the details. Look deep into nature, said Albert Einstein and you will understand everything better. And where better to celebrate our natural world than in the art of nature photography? Calling all budding photographers and nature lovers alike to enter RTE Eye on Nature, Ireland's wildlife photography competition, see rte.ie slash ionnature. Get regular updates on Nationwide on RTE One and Mooney Goes Wild on RTE Radio One. Eye on Nature, presented by RTE with the National Botanic Gardens Dublin and the OPW. See rte.ie slash ionnature. So all the details you need can be found on our website also, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. If you're interested in taking part in RTE Ion Nature, remember you've got to be over 18 and you can only submit one photograph. So go through your collection of photographs through all of your albums and send the very best one. But do read the rules and regulations very carefully before submitting. All right, later we'll speak to our third and final judge and that is Sheena Jolly. We've already met Niall Hatch. We've met Dr. Matthew Jebb of the Botanic Gardens. Sheena Jolly is a photographer. She has her studio in Skull in County Cork and from there we will speak with her later on. Right now, though, it's a question from a listener. Hi, Derek and team. Uh, Kevin Masterson here. Um, I'm interested in photography and interested in, in um, wildlife. Last Thursday, which was a beautiful sunny morning, I decided to take a trip to the Botanic Gardens in Kilmacurra, County Wicklow. Beautiful location. And on walking around, um, I noticed a butterfly and I had to follow it for a little while until it actually rested. And uh, when it did rest, I had to try and find a spot to get a photograph of it. And eventually that happened, and I took the photograph. And I wasn't sure exactly what sort of butterfly it was. And I thought it was very, very unusual that in the month of February to see such a beautiful specimen. So I um, was just wondering, would this butterfly have been hibernating in uh, the winter or would it have arrived uh, in, in Ireland this early in the year? There's one more question I'd like to ask. I visit the Botanic Gardens in Nevin on a weekly basis and there's been a mandarin duck that's been very, very friendly with a, a mallard. And for the last three months, they seem to be together all of the time, all moving in the same direction. And I was just wondering, could they actually breed? Curious to hear what the panel think. Thank you very much. So, two questions and one to start the programme tonight. Let's go to you, Aina Nilana. First, Aina, butterflies. Yeah, this is a picture of a red admiral butterfly. And it's very definitely a red admiral butterfly. The red admiral butterflies are migratory species. They come here in the summertime from further south in Europe. But they actually don't hibernate. Usually the cold of the weather finishes them off, but it doesn't finish them all off. There's always some that will survive. There's always some warm place. They lay their eggs on nettles. There are nettles around all the year. So having laid an egg on a nettle, the adult would have died. The, the egg would hatch into caterpillars, caterpillars into a chrysalis. And this one is one that survived the winter. Didn't hibernate didn't come over early from the south of Spain or anything like that, just happened to be in Kilmacurry Gardens where obviously it was a warmer place than usual.
individual and it was able to survive. Now, we do have two species of butterflies that hibernate as adults, and that is the peacock butterfly with the big eye spots and the small tortoise shell. They actually go into hibernation as an adult, and then when the warm weather comes, they wake up and start flying around again. But this one is neither of those, and this one didn't hibernate at all. It now, just you said it's to go definitely through. a red admiral. Definitely well, a red admiral. Definitely a red admiral. Describe it, please. Well, it's a big, huge one with a with lovely orange and white and red markings on it. That's what it is. It's a red admiral, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it is interesting that this phenomenon of, of butterflies appearing at this time of year, and you mentioned the small tortoise shell there, you know, one of our most familiar butterflies, uh, and one that's often seen on Budley, and particularly people see those in gardens, along with the red admiral. But there's a, a well-known phenomenon of, of these small tortoise shells turning up in dining rooms around Christmas Day because they have a habit of hibernating in the folds of curtains. And they'll stay there mostly dormant, but then what happens around Christmas is often the good room the heating's turned on and that wakes them up they think it's spring and they'll start flying around on Christmas Day so this is quite a well known thing so butterflies are very resourceful and I suppose they need to be in a changing climate in a variable climate because they're so vulnerable I suppose because they have such predetermined life stages some would overwinter as eggs some as as caterpillars some as, as pupae some as adults but if there's some cold event perhaps or some flooding event whatever it may be that wipes out the whole population they're done for so they really have to be quite resilient Life's tough for a butterfly. Richard. Yes, that's very interesting. There was a paper some years ago in the Irish Naturalist Journey by David Nash and a man named Smith. I don't know him. I have met David Nash. Now, each said that um, butterflies were recorded, the Red Admiral, that is, overwintering and with larvae, and that they can lay eggs in November and February. So it, it is an unusual thing. Also on this migratory thing, uh, there's some radar stuff in England seem to suggest they can see this stuff on the radar that seems to be insects migrating south in the autumn. And there is a suspicion that perhaps there's some kind of reverse migration taking place among some of these butterflies, but nobody's sure. I think, yes, that particularly the Painted Lady, which is a very strongly migratory butterfly, and it was thought that uh, the ones that were seen in Ireland were doomed, that they're going to die because it would be too cold here in the winter. But it, the theory is now, and it does seem to be borne out by these radar studies you mentioned, Richard, that huge numbers of these do go up into the jet stream very high up and get all the way back to the Atlas Mountains in Morocco, which is mm. incredible to think of a butterfly like that. We even get reports, though, occasionally of a butterfly called the Monarch, um, which is found mainly in North America, but some of those actually do seem to survive crossing the Atlantic and I know, I know they don't. I know they don't. They could be in the dark. They have From the Canary Islands. They're coming. They're not coming three thousand miles across the Atlantic. No, possibly. Well, we can't tag them. But they they do actually breed on the Canary Islands and And in Spain too. And the ones we get here do come from there. I think. I think now a butterfly flying three thousand miles. How do you know they haven't come from there? Rain has not. It's just said you can't tag them. You can't put a radio tracker on their back or a ring on their leg. Well, they'll have to be doing DNA analysis on them, won't they, indeed? I mean, the monarchs do actually fly great distances in America from north to south and back again. So they are a migratory species. Anyway, anything that I've seen about monarch butterflies in Ireland has traced them back to the Canaries. So, you know, that's what I know. That's what you know. <laughs> don't forget to get to the Canaries. They had to cross the Atlantic in the first place. So that's the, that's the thing there, too. But no, who knows, really? But it is interesting that those, those butterflies can survive journeys of... Uh, clearly thousands of kilometres across open water. It is amazing. What about the second part of Kevin's question, which has to do with a mandarin duck hanging around with a mallard in the botanic gardens in Glasnevin? Can they breed, he asked Richard. Now, mallards are notoriously loose. Uh, they're not strong on monogamy and marital vows, mallard, in general. They do a lot of strange things. They breed, for instance, with muscovy ducks. They produce, in that case, unfertile um, hybrids, which are very good for producing foie gras, I'm told. But anyway, we won't go down that road. And you get it in other things. Swan goose and grey goose produce fertile hybrids. And mallards breed with a fella called the yellow-billed duck, which Niall would be familiar with. It's an African duck. And they produce fertile hybrids. Now, the mandarin is a glamorous so-and-so. He is monogamous in principle. He will avail of any other opportunity to mate with something else if he doesn't. And there was a pair around in the People's Garden, Phoenix Park. I've seen it many times in the last couple of years. And it moves around a bit and certainly would go to the botanic gardens. Very glamorous 
just beautiful duck. Ducks are indeed fascinating when it comes to this idea of hybridisation and mallards particularly. They've uh, interbred with more other species of, of bird than I think any other species. They, they really are incredible. Part of that is because it seems genetically the mallard is a very young species. Human beings have been around longer than mallards have and we're a very young species as well. So it seems that some of these barriers either genetically or socially haven't developed between mallards and other types of duck and you will get sometimes geese interbreeding with ducks so you do get these bizarre hybrids there's all sorts of websites and and, and journals indeed devoted to this kind of thing however mandarin ducks are particularly interesting because there hasn't actually been a recorded case of a mandarin duck hybrid with another species it's something people are looking out for all the time but it seems that almost uniquely among these ducks mandarins have a weird incompatibility with their chromosomes the different chromosome number so from the behavior that's been described there of this this male drake mandarin duck palling around with this female mallard they may well be feeling amorous and he may well mate with her but it doesn't necessarily mean that they would produce offspring though but it has to do with chromosomes has it not Yes, that's the theory, that uh, mandarin ducks have an incompatibility with the chromosomes. They have a different number to other ducks, and this seems to be a real barrier between them successfully interbreeding and producing viable offspring. I believe they haven't even been recorded hybridising with their closest relative, which is uh, a duck called the wood duck, which is from North America. The mandarin duck is native to East Asia. Um, both very flamboyant-looking drakes, um, really spectacular-looking yeah, look mad. They look as if they fell into a paint box. I mean, every colour of the sun is on them. But I mean, this fella's only torn shapes and having a good time of doing the bold thing with the mallard but I don't suppose there'll be the patter of little little webbed feet anytime soon from the from the union. No I, I suspect not in this case although never say never because ducks constantly surprise us so I would like to see what happens there. We do know that the mallards have a, a really quite unique mating system as well. Uh, the male has an organ that's akin to a penis it's not quite the same and it may be a whole different mechanism for how the female will be fertilised as well so there could be an incompatibility there with the mandarin duck uh, too but um, certainly you know a, a an interesting bird to look at. I've seen that that Drake Mandarin duck hanging around the Botanic Gardens and it really is a flamboyant looking creature. They really are beautiful. Well, describe them. You keep saying they're flamboyant. Describe what they look like for the benefit of people who are going into the Botanic Gardens. Now. So when, when you see them first, the main thing you notice is bright orange. So that's the main colour you'll see on them. They have these sort of crested heads sort of sweeping back this bouffant hairdo. But the other main thing your eye will be drawn to is the fact that the male has these big, I can only describe them as sails on his back and it's part of his wings. The secondary feathers sort of flare up and it looks very dramatic in Indeed, and this is a bird that was um, revered in East Asia and many cultures there. You often see them on Japanese imperial paintings and so on. Uh, and I've had the great pleasure of actually seeing them in Eastern Russia. And, uh, and indeed, I saw them once, uh, these mandarin ducks, in Japan uh, in a town called Satsuma, so a very citrus fruit laden area. <laughs> but there's black and white and red and orange and everything. Yeah, they're very, very colourful. I said it looked like they fell into a paintbrush. It looks to me, it looks like if, if a child got a box of crayons and coloured in a duck randomly in their colouring book, um, and you think that could never exist in real life and that's what a mandarin duck looks like. Richard? Yeah, that's very interesting that the mandarin is so brightly coloured because bright colour and glamour usually leads to a sort of flexible attitude to mating because you're using this wonderful panoply of colours and glamour to secure matings with the opposite sex. But this isn't the case with the mandarin. Oddly, isn't it strange that it goes to the trouble of producing such elaborate plumage when the possibility of a mistake, breathing with the wrong thing, is remote? Richard, what do you know about beavers? Beavers, and I've seen beavers. Beavers are wonderful characters, extraordinary animals. They have a huge flat tail, you know, at the back, which is very strange to look at. In fact, long ago, back in the Middle Ages, they thought that the beaver was half a mammal and half a fish. And it meant that you could eat beaver tail on Fridays when you were forbidden to eat the rest of the beaver. Anyway, they're beautiful animals. They're all over Europe. They were never in Ireland, oddly enough. And that is strange. They were in Britain and they were all over Europe. There is a beaver in North America, a slightly smaller version in Canada. It's a very successful animal until we came along and decimated the population. It almost became extinct in some places. It's amazing how Jesuitical people were about what they could and couldn't eat on a Friday. You could eat the tail of the beaver but not the rest of it and nowadays I mean if people were to eat beaver they'd probably be horrified to hear that the beaver is actually a rodent. The same family as rats are. But obviously that didn't trouble people in medieval <laughs> times. And I think 
they knew well what they were doing as well. We heard the same story with the barnacle geese. They thought that they can't, their young were barnacles, so they're actually a type of shellfish, so they could eat the geese. They knew what they were doing. There was a, a knowing wink going on amongst them. We can eat the beaver tails. We can eat the geese. They and they, they, they could eat whales as well yes. because whales were fish. They were they were doing feet, even though yeah. whales are mammals. You know something? It's amazing what you could do when you think you're doing something you want to do. Mm. I remember my first encounter with a, a wild North American beaver. So different species to the one that we have in Europe, but very similar. I was camped once with a friend um, and a, a, beside a lake in, in Manitoba in Canada and all of a sudden it sounded like someone was firing a gun and we were terrified in this remote area in our tent. Then we realised it was a beaver slapping its tail on the water. Oh, wow. It was so loud. It was absolutely incredible. So I've, I've had a real uh, soft spot for beavers ever since. Well, I assume you asked why do they slap their tail on the water? There must be a reason. Yes, it, 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 it's a territorial thing. It's a way of attracting a mate. And it's a bit like a song and a bird. That's what they're doing. They're, they're showing their territory. They're trying to attract in a mate. It's, I believe, mostly the males that do it, although the females may do it as well. Uh, and it was actually amazing watching it. We actually, actually saw one at one point gnawing and cutting down a tree that is quite a small tree but still a tree the thing collapsed right beside our tent and the beaver just dragged it off during the night absolutely amazing yeah I'd say the beast of the tail was pretty tough if it was whacking it off the water like that <laughs> I can only imagine anyway as Richard mentioned earlier they were widely hunted for their fur and their meat and they became extinct in England during the 16th century but now they're returning to urban London there have already been reintroductions in other parts of the UK and they're going to be in London now for the first time in 400 years and they could stop flooding it's claimed at a local train station Station. What's this got to do with us here in Ireland? Well, you could argue it has nothing to do with us. We're interested in wildlife and stories about reintroduction programmes all over the world. But it just so happens that the man leading this project is Irish. His name is Dr. Sean McCormick. He is a vet and he joins us now from his home in Ealing. Hello, Sean. How are you? Now, begin by telling me how you actually came to be heading up this project, if you would. Yeah, it's a bit of a, a long story, but basically I'm a vet by profession. I studied in UCD in Dublin and came over to England when I qualified as a vet and really kind of a few years ago got back to my real passion, which is nature um, rather than, you know, just domestic pets. And I set up a group in my local neighbourhood because there didn't seem to be too much going on in terms of wildlife conservation. So I set one up for myself called Ealing Wildlife Group. And we've kind of grown quite rapidly, uh, more than I anticipated. And we do a lot of conservation projects with different species in the urban landscape, things like peregrine falcons, barn owls, great crested newts. We've reintroduced harvest mice, Britain's smallest rodent, Europe's smallest rodent. And now we're moving on to uh, Britain's largest native rodent, which is the beaver. Well, there's been a lot of talk about beavers in the UK in the past few years. They've been brought back here and there. Some, I believe, are even colonising of their own volition from stock that has been reintroduced. Why is it so important to bring back the beaver to Ealing in London? Yeah, well, I think nationwide anyway, you know, this is a a species that we eliminated um, through hunting and, and persecution. And it's important to bring them back because they're a vital part of the ecosystem in general. They're known as ecosystem engineers. They're quite unique because anything beaver a beaver does in the landscape actually has massive benefits for wider biodiversity, the health of our rivers, the health of our ecosystems. And I think despite what people think, beavers are not necessarily a kind of a wilderness species. We've seen in cities across the, the world, really, from kind of Berlin, Munich, Vancouver, that actually beavers can live in harmony with people in the urban landscape as well. Now, you've hinted at that, that beavers are kind of making their own way back in the UK. And we kind of have said it's only a matter of time before they start turning up in towns and cities. So we've decided to do an enclosed controlled beaver trial in the urban landscape to really figure out how we can live alongside them, you know, without conflict. So tell me exactly your setup there. Describe the setup for me. We're releasing them into an area called Paradise Fields, which is quite a cool name, (laughs) Beavers at Paradise Fields. But basically Paradise Fields is um, a large site. It's about 25 acres in total. It's a kind of sunken dish or basin in the urban landscape. And it's kind of surrounded by, there's an industrial estate on one side. There's lots of woods and fields on the other. um, And it acts as a kind of a, a basin for water to flow through. So what we anticipate is that the beavers will actually slow the flow of water through that landscape. And um, downstream of that landscape, there is flood risk. So we're anticipating that the beavers slowing the flow of water in there will actually lead to mitigation of flooding downstream. That all sounds fantastic, Sean. They'll do good in one area, but is it not possible that they could cause disruption in others? 
Well, this is one of the things that we want to study. So we know that in very localised um, situations, beavers can cause issues. So just as much as beavers can slow the flow of water, they can also cause kind of flooding, unwanted flooding in some areas. But there are solutions that we can put in place. So let's say, for instance, a beaver floods um, a football pitch in an urban area. What we can do is put in something called a beaver flow device, um, which basically controls the level of the water behind the dam. And um, we can mitigate in that way. And then the other thing people kind of worry about is um, beavers bringing down trees. So uh, you can actually protect trees quite well with mesh or painting with sand. I'm just very interested in all of this. I mean, I'm trying to compare paradise fields, if such a thing were possible, with some situation in Ireland that Irish listeners can can compare. So you have this sort of dugout basin full of water, which is where you're putting them in, from what I gathered you said to Derek, and the trees and fields are down from that. But, I mean, what would be something similar, say, in the Phoenix Park or somewhere in Ireland that you could imagine the same situation happening? Because the way I think of beavers is that they have to have water to live in and they have to be able to build dams and this sort of thing. And um, they need timber for that. So you need a place where these things are available. So how does your paradise fields actually look like? What kind of an ecosystem is it? Yeah, great question, Ina. I think I haven't um, painted the picture quite quite well enough, but basically it's been described by the Beaver Trust, which are a charity over here, as possibly one of the best sites they've seen in London for beaver um, suitability. So it's a series of meadow habitats, wet woodland, which obviously beavers love, absolutely loads and loads of willow and birch in there, which are their favourite tree species, and a series of lagoons, pools and um, reed beds. And there's two sources of water coming into the site. So what we anticipate is they'll dam those and they'll create an even more rich ecosystem of wetlands within there. So, yeah, it should be really exciting to see what they're doing over time. Now, what do, what do beavers feed on? Tell us their life cycle. I mean, do they hibernate? I mean, we don't have beavers in Ireland, so you're the expert on it now. You soon will. So give us chapter and verse on, on how a beaver lives. Yeah, no worries. They're quite an interesting rodent, actually. So they're the biggest rodent um, in Europe. They're the second biggest rodent in the world after the capybara. And um, unusually for rodents, they live long time. So most of our rodents we think of as living fast, dying young, producing loads and loads of babies and being prey for everything else. But because these guys are so big, they actually live quite a long time and they're monogamous. So we'll be getting a pair from Scotland and possibly um, a family if they have kids already. But the pair will actually breed and they they live in family groups so the youngsters will stick around in the lodge, which is a large kind of collection of sticks and mud that houses them and protects them from predators. And that's normally in the middle of one of their kind of ponds or lakes. And then basically they will live in there as a family. The youngsters will live with them. And about two or three years later, those adults kind of or grown up youngsters will leave and disperse. Um, they feed just on trees and vegetation. So... Um, you've heard of the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, I'm sure. Indeed I have, yes. Yeah, C.S. Lewis has a lot to answer for with kind of misconceptions around beavers because basically he propagated the myth that beavers eat fish, but they don't. They don't eat fish at all, they just eat plants. So what they do is they take down trees and coppice trees, mainly willow and birch, which um, is not a bad thing. I mean, we all think about trees are precious and things, but actually the way beavers harvest trees is they coppice them at the base and then they grow back. So it means that um, you get a structural diversity of tree species in the landscape and plants in the landscape. You get more light coming in to rivers and ponds and light and photosynthesis really creates this almost biodiversity magic pill in a wetland and you get loads of things kind of springing up from that landscape. So beavers are shaping the landscape to be really rich in kind of biodiversity. And then they're eating the bark and the, the leaves and they're using the woody material to make their dams. So then you're hoping then that this dam will slow the water going on further and a railway station further down along won't be in danger of being flooded because the water won't get that far. Is that the quid pro quo you reckon there might be from this? That's our ecosystem services that we're hoping the beavers will provide, yeah. So the local council is willing to support us on this because they already had Paradise Fields tagged as a project that would be... um, useful for flood mitigation downstream. So there's a a centre line tube station at Greenford 
And around that, all these kind of residential streets around that are prone to flooding. So the idea is that when a beaver creates this complex wetland, it almost acts like a sponge. Um, you know, it retains a lot more water. It slows the flow of water in flood events through that landscape. And instead of water gushing through in a matter of minutes, it can take several hours for water to pass through. So the idea is that downstream in that high risk area, beavers will slow the flow of water and hopefully, hopefully reduce urban flooding. Sean, in Sweden, there are sections of the landscape which were created by beaver, which is ironic because beavers were rendered extinct there as in Britain in the late 19th century. But you can go, archaeologists document this, you can go and you can see how the beavers have created something. Is there any place like that in Britain that has been shaped by the dams and the architecture of beavers? Not that I'm aware of in terms of the, the kind of duration of beaver activity, because we're, we're only dealing with about 20, 25 years of beavers being back in Britain. And they're in isolated pockets, you know, they're not kind of on large scale river catchments just yet. So it's thought the estimates are maybe, I think it's somewhere between 1000 and 1500 beavers in Britain. So we're not quite at the levels in Europe where I think there's 16,000 in France, there's 125,000 beavers in Poland. So we're not seeing that landscape scale change of beavers being back on kind of water catchments and things. But, you know, that time will come. And I think the, the justification for this project of seeing how they will interact with an urban river catchment is they're on their way. So let's kind of study them now and let's see what they can do. And let's see actually if they are causing minor inconveniences or major inconveniences to some stakeholders around these urban areas, then what can we do to manage them better? One other thing I want to ask you about is the, the smelly stuff they produce, which is their downfall in a way. Uh, people went for this substance, castoreum. It was much sought after for bogus medical preparations and for cosmetics. And even Pliny, the famous Roman writer of the first century, he endorsed this view of castoreum. Why would a rodent living in the water need something as powerful as that for signaling purposes? Good question. Just to your point on kind of... Um historical evidence, the archaeological evidence has shown some wetlands that were kind of created and have lots of evidence of intense and high density beaver activity. But yeah, the castorium um, kind of part of the story is really interesting. There is some science behind it because beavers are, um, they're collecting this oily substance in their scent glands by their anal glands. It's um, a substance that accumulates and it's for scent marking. So it's similar to a lot of um, animals that have anal secretions, anal gland secretions. They use it for scent marking, they use it for, as social cues and things. Um, in beavers, because they're eating so much willow, they're accumulating a compound called salicylic acid in this secretion, this castorium secretion. And salicylic acid is actually the active ingredient of aspirin that we use for pain relief and anti-inflammatory. So don't ask me how someone, you know, in history, found this out, but they found that actually there were some medicinal qualities to the beaver's anal gland secretion. Now, the primary reason they were hunted was for their fur and for their meat, but they found out along the way that this castorium secretion also had medicinal qualities and held perfume, just like other mammals like produce musk, um, which is highly valued for perfume. So beavers were economically important, still are economically important in some parts of the world. Um, and one of the earliest records of beavers Kind of written records is basically a kind of a marketplace and diary entry about the price of beaver pelts. And that goes back hundreds of years, um, basically way beyond when they became extinct. So they were a valuable animal. And unfortunately, like we tend to do, you know, we over harvested and uh, took them out and, and caused them to go extinct for those reasons. Well, just down the road from the studios here in Donnybrook, is a road that runs alongside the River Dodder and it's called Beaver Row. There was a hat factory there back in the day and they used to import beaver pelts, I assume from across Europe, and make beaver hats. The factory's no longer there. The old cottages are still there that were built for the workforce who actually produced these hats. It's interesting, the next time you're passing through Donnybrook, it's just behind the bus station, which is opposite the church. Look for Beaver Row if you're walking. And there's a lot of history there. Anyway, Niall, 
just on the subject there of the castorium, uh, that, that secretion from their glands, I know that one of the uses um, in, in the past, at least for that, was as a replacement for vanilla flavouring in food. So it's labelled actually as a natural flavouring and didn't have to be listed in the food products. I don't think it's used very much today, so people don't have to worry about that. But that's one of the first times I came across that particular substance. So if um, you ate your ice cream and you think your headache was relieved, it could be from the salicylic acid. Yeah, thing. so yeah. It, it cures the brain freeze from the ice cream. That must be it. No, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but Sean, you, you, you mentioned there obviously that, that beavers were once native to, to Britain. They were uh, wiped out because the hunting pressure and so on. I presume wetland drainage and so on must have played a role there as well. But now the time is right to bring them back. Those pressures have been removed. But obviously other species have been lost as well. And um, when you're reintroducing a creature, you're looking at the whole ecosystem, the predator-prey relationships. Are there any natural predators of the beaver in the area or is there a risk that their numbers could grow unchecked? Um, there are some natural predators. It's, it's often a misconception that, oh, beavers won't have any natural predators because we wipe those out too. So the, the very kind of dangerous predators traditionally or historically for beaver were your wolf, your lynx, your bears, the large kind of carnivores. Um, but actually there's some evidence that um, other carnivores will take young beaver kits, things like foxes and, and the generalist predators, um, even otters, uh, large birds of prey that are being restored now, like white-tailed sea eagles that are, you know, living in wetlands will certainly take a young beaver if they can. The adults are very large and robust. You know, they can grow up to 25, 30 kilos, you know, the size of a Springer Spaniel or the mass of a Springer Spaniel. So there's not much that can take an adult out. But as I say, these are long-lived and generally reproductively slow. Um, So they're not going to take over the world unchecked. Um, There may be, you know, issues in localised areas, like on the Tay side in Scotland, they were illegally reintroduced there. It's not the right habitat for them. It's prime agricultural land. And that's actually where we're getting our beavers. We're taking beavers from there, translocating them to more suitable habitat um, where they can thrive and where the alternative would be that they would be shot because they are flooding farmers' fields and it's just not the right landscape for them. So there will be a bit of management needed in this, but we believe really that the pros really outweigh the cons and this is an animal that can solve some of our problems with the biodiversity crisis, with pollution problems in our rivers, with um, flooding risk, um, with helping with climate change by capturing carbon into, into wetlands. So the list of positives really, I think, is, is um, quite large and learning to manage beavers in the landscape is something that we're going to have to do regardless. Well, Sean, we wish you the very best of luck with that project and we'll see you soon. Great. Lovely to talk. Thanks a lot. Now, Aina, you want to talk to us about the word heritage. Well, now, when we think of the word heritage, what do we think of? Now, listeners to this programme will obviously think of our natural heritage, of our environment, of the birds and the bees, things we're talking about. But, you know, imagine if you were going around Ireland looking at the birds and the bees and you didn't know any other aspect of things. You didn't know anything about our history, for example. What would you think Germage and Grania's beds were or Sarsfield's ride? If you didn't know anything about the Irish language, you'd never know that Mayo was actually the plain of the yew trees or that Leitrim was a grey hill. So having other aspects enhances our knowledge of our heritage. So not just our natural heritage, but our cultural heritage, our built heritage, all of those things. So when I see that there's actually a programme called Heritage Keepers, I was really fascinated to find out what this was all about. And of course, that this has been coordinated by Anya Bird over in Burnbio, and she is going to tell us all about this Heritage Keepers programme. Hello, Anya. How are you doing? Hi, Aina. Lovely to talk to you. We're doing great over here on the West Coast. So now you, you've got this Heritage Keepers programme and you, you, you had it last year, you had it this is the second year of it. And this is a, a, a programme that's run for primary schools. Now, what's involved? Can you give us a, an outline of what the programme is first and then we can talk about how you get involved if you want to do it? So Heritage Keepers has come about, I suppose, from years of Burrinbio working on the ground with schools and communities in the Burren. And we've always been working towards, I suppose, people connecting with and engaging with their local place. And and like you mentioned, for us, when we're talking about local place and talking about heritage, we're talking about 
the whole place. So the built natural and cultural heritage and how they intertwine and how they are kind of all part of the same story. And, you know, that that's part of the reason we take that approach. But also what we found is that for some people connecting to biodiversity and um the environment comes naturally. That's an automatic, they understand. But for others, it might take a little while and that actually looking at it through the lens of the past and culture and, um, you know, trying to tie these things together really got people interested. So yet, like you said, last year, we were delighted to partner with the Heritage Council in piloting this Heritage Keepers programme. Um, and this year again, um, in partnership again with the Heritage Council, we are delivering Heritage Keepers to primary school groups, like you mentioned, but also to community groups all over Ireland. And the groups, whether primary or community, they take part in a series of workshops, very interactive. And we really come at it again from a, a place of not saying, look, we're the experts and we're going to tell you all this stuff. We work together and we really just point people in the direction of the resources that are available to them. We get them to maybe ask questions about what their place means to them, what connects them to their place um, and to consider then the pr perspectives of other people and um, to see if we can get more on, more people on board, I suppose, with caring about and being interested in heritage and our local places. And then the real, I think, strength of Heritage Keepers is that the whole programme is building towards identifying a local action that the group want to take. So again, it's not us telling them what they should do. It's about kind of presenting a suite of ideas and asking questions where the group identify then some aspect of their local heritage that they'd like to take action on. Um, and we're delighted that we can support them in not only coming up with the plans, but also we have a, a small little kind of microfinancing scheme that we can put up a little bit of money to make those plans a reality. Because too often for the sake of a couple of hundred euro, maybe um, people can't get going on something. So it, it has been a real success and the groups learn something and enjoy it. And also what we found, another kind of benefit that we mightn't have even have thought of was that we work with community groups together from around Ireland. So they get to meet each other and get to hear the shared concerns or ideas. And um, so we're all learning together basically at the same time. And um, so, yeah, it's it's been it's been brilliant um, and um, lovely to work with schools and communities around Ireland. So I'm a primary school with my children and we are very interested in our parish because there's history associated with it. Maybe it's up in in, in County Monaghan Cavan, the areas where they the Battle of the Yellow Ford was fought by in the 1500s or maybe it's down in Cork where there was a woodland that was there and it's no longer there, something like this. And you'd think, well, I we'd like to be heritage keepers. We'd like to know what is happening around our area and how we can in some way enhance this. Do we apply? Do you come to us? Do we have to go to the burn to you? We have to do five two-hour workshops. Is this just ourselves and you or... Are we part of a big group, maybe 10 or 11 other groups all doing the same thing and doing a generic one? What What are the nuts and bolts of this scheme? Yeah, so it, it's interesting. The things that we probably thought would never be possible pre-COVID um, that we can now do because we've all been brought into the world of Zoom. And I know Zoom has its pros and cons, but for us, it has worked really well with delivering these workshops. So for the schools or community groups around Ireland, we work um, over Zoom and yet we have a couple of people together on a call and we work through the activities together. So you will get to hear about the other places as well. Um, but, you know, in, in a lot of cases, it's kind of pointing people towards resources like online resource where you can get so much information about your place. Or maybe it's looking at census records or looking at the folklore collection, the schools collection, or then another week we might look at the MPWS and the protected sites in your area and get to know what they are and why they're protected or the National Biodiversity Data Centre's uh, many resources. So yeah, just send us an email. The easiest one is probably info, I-N-F-O at burrinbio.com and we'll be in touch. Terrific stuff and you'll also find the details on our own website which is rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Let's go now to Terry Flanagan. Terry, you've been out and about looking at barn owl nest boxes, I believe. Yes, Derek, I was. You remember um, a couple of months ago, 
we did the Barn Owl documentary. And mm-hmm. from that, I certainly learned that boxes, they make an ideal nesting location and they're definitely helping and they're definitely helping to increase barn owl numbers around the country. Uh, There's a number of dedicated groups, and what they're doing is they're erecting these boxes in the hope of attracting the birds into the boxes. Anyway, I met up with Orrin O'Sullivan from the Wicklow Barn Owl Project, and he took me to an isolated farm in South Wicklow, where he talked to me about the importance of this work that they were undertaking. Okay, Terry, let's go and check this indoor box up at the back of this barn. It's probably about, about 15, 20 metres up. Yeah, we're down in South County Wicklow here and we're off the beaten track, so to speak. And you've got this beautiful barn box up. And you also have another one here on the ground beside me. This is a brand new one. Yes, the indoor boxes are like a big tea chest, if you remember yeah. the tea chest. They're so our, different from, from a, a blue tip. <laughs> it's uh, bl- uh, on steroids. But I mean, it's basically just a big square box with a uh, square or round hole at the very top of the structure. And we fit a balcony because the barn owls, when they hatch and grow, they like to come up through the box and sit around outside. And you're trying to avoid them falling to the ground where they'll perish, if you like. So it's quite a big structure. It must be very weighty, is it? Yes, I know the outdoor ones are up to 23 kilos. The indoor ones is a lighter grade. They're a little bit easier to carry around or to put up, I suppose. Uh, We have a kind of professional crew that fit from the National Parks and Wildlife Service and a tree surgeon. If you have a cherry picker or a teleporter, you know, like a landowner or a farmer might have, it's doable, you know, but it's not a, we don't really recommend sending the brother-in-law up on a ladder right. or anything like right. that, you know. So you're involved with this barn owl project here in County Wicklow, and the idea is to put up as many barn owl boxes as possible. Are they successful? Yes, um, there's quite a good take-up, we know, from our neighbours in, in Wexford and uh, also down in the west of Ireland, where our programmes are well advanced. Uh, we're just into our second year now, but there's maybe up to, I expect, at least 50 boxes in the county uh, by the end of this season. The advantage of having a box in a known location, you pin it, obviously, on Google, but you can check it from year to year. You can monitor prey items, monitor breeding success. It's a win-win situation. And also, owls, they don't have that many natural nest sites. I mean, this barn is perfect, it's nice and quiet. It's just been used to store tractors and farm machinery plenty of space but when you look through the girders and the structure there isn't anywhere for a whole nesting bird the size of a barn owl to actually nest in there's no cavity within this so it's a modern structure now this owl box that's up here on the wall how long is that there and has it been successful it doesn't appear to be we've only checked it now in the last few months but the landowner doesn't feel there's a barn owl in it but we've quite a few records of barn owls in the nearby motorway stretch well of course this is the the area yeah and this is the time of the year when they'll be pairing off absolutely uh, this is a good time I'd be looking out for jackdaws in the area. There's plenty of jackdaws around the farm, but they don't seem to be in this barn. So mm. this, I think, is available for occupation. I have a thermal camera, which we use to look at okay. uh, structures. So what you do is you're going to use this now to see if there's anything inside yeah, in it. Just to look for a heat map. Now, it's just like a little telescope it's, is what Yeah, or like the old style. Um, yeah, or a cine camera. The box is all dark, and I see bits of red around which is warmer, it doesn't appear to be. But you can also use the thermal imager to scan around the barn because there's plenty of places here. Barn owls are notoriously uh, shy and they can slip out the back. As so so you reckon that a barn owl could be in the barn here now? They could be roosting in this, in this area. I'm kind of surprised that doesn't show yeah. major occupation. I will need to get up there at some stage, not today, to look at that just to make sure it hasn't been taken over by Jack Dawes, who will fill, it, fill the structure with sticks. And then it becomes less uh, Likely that attractive a for a barn owl to yeah. take. Yeah. You know? When I think of a lot of animals, um, they often have the name of the habitat in which they're found. So if I think of a wood pigeon as a bird that you'll find in a woodland, and I think of a tree creeper as a bird that you'll find on a, on a tree, and Creeping, you've got a, yes. a hedgehog, which yes. is an animal you find in a hedge. Yes, yes. Here we have barn owls. So the name of the barn owl implies that they're living in a barn, but a barn is not a natural habitat. So how important are these man-made structures to the likes of owls? Well, they are very important. I mean, this is a lowland species that you would associate with agriculture with open areas. So the farm, if you like, with headlands and so forth, hedgerows, uh, all that linear habitat, that's, barn owls feed along that. 
then they need somewhere to come to roost safely because they'll be mobbed by smaller birds. Uh, they're nocturnal species, obviously. So they need a roost, and that roost could be in a, in a big old ash tree or an elm tree if there's any left, where there'd be a, a suitable hole. But they'll come into barns and they'll say use the girders even just to roost. But a box would be ideal for, for the nest. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is aptly named as a barn owl because they are associated. Uh, and farmers and landowners like to have barn owls around because they take rodents for prey, maybe three, four a night. They can do a good job. They're the farmer's friend, uh, as they're known as. But the barns nowadays, are they as, say, barn owl friendly as they were many, many years ago? Is it easy for them to get in and out? I think it, uh, it is. It just depends what's stored in the barn. I mean, once the space were to get in and out, and I think providing a box is ideal because there are not many, there's no box, there's no nesting opportunity in this, in this barn that we're in apart from the box. That actually really facilitates the whole thing. But Lots but of open access. There, uh, you said there about providing a space to get in and out. Now, if you think of a, a swallow, that only needs a tiny little space to get in and out yes, of a barn. Yes. But a barn owl is a much bigger bird, so with its wingspan, it's going to need a really big opening to get in and yeah, out. Yeah, I think um, nearly all the barns will, like we have an open, it's not gated uh, at one end. Obviously, it's roofed and uh, three sides corrugated and precast, but you have one open, permanent open entrance. So that's... As long as that's not blocked up, they can get in and get out. They don't need that much space either. According to the guides, a natural hole can be from the size of a tennis ball up. Now, that's small. That's, I thought that was small for a female barn owl. That's a bit of a squeeze. But you see it every day with blue tits getting into, you know, yeah, tiniest, no, tiniest. No, blue tits <laughs> It's a two step di- up. <laughs> two <laughs> different animals. Yes, yeah. Once the gate is open, it's like the same with the swallows. Once they can get in and out, yeah. it's when you close the gate, you know, it becomes difficult. Are a lot of barns being converted to, say, houses and things like that? Now, because I, I see it down the country. What was once a barn is now yes. a, a beautiful home. Yeah. Um, for humans, I should say. I know in Wicklow there's actually actually not that many old buildings and even you know decrepit and fallen down country houses or whatever seems to be more i think in the west uh, where there's been abandonment if you like everything in wicklow seems to be improved or built on the new barns are fine if you can include a box you certainly uh, there's no reason why a barn owl won't come in once the space is there and i mean farming structures everything is kind of scaled up so there is space for them definitely and uh, there's the interest i think certainly we found that in wicklow there's the interest in the countryside Okay. Uh, well, joining us also is uh, Deirdre Burns. Deirdre is the Heritage Officer with Wicklow County Council. How are you involved with barn owls, Deirdre? Well, uh, we're involved in barn owls as it's, um, we suppose we collaborated with NPWS, National Parks and Wildlife Service, and we got Oren on board really to do this it's a, as a practical conservation action. So really the idea is that it's something that everybody in Wicklow really can participate in, in being the eyes on the ground. And we've had great take-up just from members of the public reporting sightings, reporting where there might have been historic sightings from their childhood, and then reporting suitable places that they think would be suitable for boxes. So we've had great take-up, and they're one of these species, I suppose, that once people see images of them, people will recognise it. And I think people have a great fondness for something like a barn owl, farmers in particular, of course, because it's the, the farmer's friend, their primary diet being rodents and all that. So we've been involved in this project since last year, encouraging members of the public to get involved. And then going forward, we're setting up a GIS database that will be our database for monitoring what we're doing. Now explain GIS. GIS is Geographic Information Systems, so it's basically... Your mapping. We uploaded all our sightings onto that, and then going forward, when we visit the nest boxes and find out, hopefully, the ones that are occupied, we'll be able to record that. We'll be able to record whether there's bigger success at indoor boxes, outdoor boxes, uh, different parts of the county. So it'll be our, our baseline recording. And also, for we're hoping to develop an interactive map for members of the public and just click on where they've seen one or where they think might be a suitable place. So like, they're on, their numbers are on an upward trend at the moment. So things are looking good for them. And with the help from people like yourself and Deard and that, it can yeah. only improve it. Uh, the one thing about birds of prey in particular, they're an apex predator. So the supply of food, you know, meat, 
to those effects, how many eggs they lay and how many young they'll actually successfully rear. So they're on a bit of a roll with this, and I think that's why we're getting more barn owls. The other pluses and minuses are road networks can provide food for barn owls, but they can also lure them to, the, to their death when fast-moving traffic on motorways, that kind of thing. But they, they probably find easy feeding on motorways at the intersections because they're lit at night, and you know the gra- long grass is only cut once a year maybe, so that's good for rodents, so barn owls will move in to take that, but it's a big risk for them. So here's hoping to a successful breeding year for the barn owls in County Wicklow. Absolutely. It's so iconic to see one. It would make my day any day to see a barn owl, or to hear one indeed. So we expect a good season ahead of us now and great response from our landowners indeed. As always, details on the website rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Thank you very much indeed, Terry Flanagan. Now, RTE Ion Nature mentioned at the top of the programme. If you want to enter a photograph with a chance of becoming this year's winner of the competition and that €1,000 prize, visit our website. I've just given out the details. Let's say hello now to Sheena Jolly, who is one of our judges, along with Dr Matthew Jebb of the Botanic Gardens and Niall Hatch. Sheena is in her studio in Skull in County Cork. Hello, Sheena, we're delighted to have you back on board. How are you feeling about it? <laughs> Thank you very much. Now, it's a privilege to be asked and really looking forward to seeing the, the images. There's so many talented uh, photographers in Ireland. Now, you're the professional photographer on the judging panel. What does it take to make a good image? Primarily, you really have to have patience. But if you have a passion for what you're doing and you love your subject, then you're going to spend time observing your subject And with determination and understanding of your subject's behaviour, you could anticipate what's what's going to happen in order to create a story. Now, like last year's winning photograph was certainly no snapshot. Jimmy McDonald had figured out where and how he wanted to get a shot of the red squirrel. The light on fussy background and the foreground were out of focus by using a white aperture. And this made the subject pop out of the image. The subject was placed in the, in the strongest area of the photograph to provide a pleasing composition and the focus on the eye held the viewer's attention without any distraction. The other thing he did by shooting the image from a low level with the animal and he kept capturing a, a momentary eye contact, he's connected his subject to the viewer and he's really created an intimate photograph. Of course, you know, to take a great image, there's always that element of luck as well that the subject will appear when and where you hope but by knowing your subject, you can predict some of that behaviour. What exactly are the judges looking for in a photograph? The main thing the judges are looking for is if the image is properly in focus. You've got, got to have good use of lighting, and both lighting and exposure. So you've got to display technical excellence in the execution of an image. And the big thing, you need to capture unique moment behaviour, a story or an emotion. And the judges are all looking for an impact that really provokes that wow factor. And that's created by a combination of the skills we've just talked about and by your creative interpretation. You're aiming to achieve a lasting impression. And an animal or a bird or a flower that conveys a, a, a feeling of the, the spirit of, a, of a, a wild plant or a wild creature. Um, so I really look forward to seeing what images do do come in. Aren't we all? Thank you very much indeed, Sheena Jolly. Don't forget you can visit the website to find all the details, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. That's all we have time for. My thanks also to Niall Hatch, Richard Collins, Amy Lana and Terry Flanagan. Our broadcast coordinator is Jonathan Holland and our researcher is John Bella Riley. We do it all again next week. Until then, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye.